The following is a conversation with Frank Wilczek, a theoretical physicist at MIT who won the Nobel Prize for the co-discovery of asymptotic freedom in the theory of strong interaction. Quick mention of our sponsors, the Information, NetSuite, ExpressVPN, Blinkist, and Asleep. Check them out in the description to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say a word about asymptotic freedom. Protons and neutrons make up the nucleus of an atom. Strong interaction is responsible for the strong nuclear force that binds them. But strong interaction also holds together the quarks that make up the protons and neutrons. Frank Wilczek, David Gross, and David Pulitzer came up with a theory postulating that when quarks come really close to one another, the attraction abates and they behave like free particles. This is called asymptotic freedom. This happens at very, very high energies, which is also where all the fun is. And now we get to the advertisement portion of this program. I'm recording it in the middle of nowhere in a deserted airport, holding the microphone in my hand, plugged into the wall. I don't know what I'm doing. There's a bit of a failure of uh, technology that resulted in me being forced <laughs> to do this at the airport. So let's try it out. If you want to skip these ads, there's timestamps, but uh, you should know that it really is the best way to support this podcast. And uh, we're very picky with the sponsors we take on. So if you do buy their stuff, I think you're not going to regret it. This show is sponsored by The Information. They do in-depth, data-driven, investigative journalism in the world of technology. I actually signed up to them a few years ago, back when I really, really could not afford it. And by the way, if there's airport sounds that come through this, we're gonna have to deal with it together. <laughs> Go with the flow. But yes, I uh, signed up when I couldn't really afford it and it was definitely worth it. It made me realize that good journalism costs money. And the reason I keep supporting the information is because it feels like I'm supporting great journalism broadly. There's just some really crappy clickbait, shallow journalism out there. And it's really valuable when journalists take a long period of time to in-depth from a perspective expertise, data-driven, actually dig into the stories and provide a lot of context. Whether you agree with the perspective they take or not, it doesn't matter. Knowledge is power and they provide knowledge. Anyway, get 75% off your first month if you sign up at theinformation.com slash Lex. That's theinformation.com slash Lex. I see it as a good way of supporting in-depth journalism. I hope you do as well. I can't believe I'm doing this at the airport. There's security guards everywhere. Okay, this show is sponsored by NetSuite. This one's for the business owners. Running a business is hard. If you own a business, don't like QuickBooks and spreadsheets make it even harder than it needs to. You should consider upgrading to NetSuite. It allows you to manage financials, human resources, venture, e-commerce, and many more business-related details all in one place. The absurdity of me at the airport reading ads about employment while dreaming of starting a business myself is rich and, uh, and beautiful. I do think about running a company and I think about whether this could be a source of happiness because it seems like the source of unhappiness is all the mess of hiring, of firing, and all the muck of bureaucracy that you have to cut through in order to do the fun stuff, the big decisions, the taking on the engineering challenges, all of that. That stuff is exciting. It's the bureaucracy, the meetings, the nonsense that I don't like. 
And I think the whole point of NetSuite is they try to be a tool that can help with that nonsense and take it off your uh, shoulders, make it easy, make it efficient. Get a free product tour at netsuite.com slash flex. If you own a business, try them out. Schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com slash flex. That's netsuite.com slash flex, spelled N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash flex. If you don't know how to spell Lex, I think you're beyond help, like me. This show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. ISPs operate like monopolies. <laughs> the ExpressVPN reads are getting more and more aggressive. I love it. Uh, data caps, streaming throttles, the list goes on. But worst of all, many ISPs log your internet activity and sell that data onto other big tech companies or advertisers. To prevent ISPs from seeing my internet, I protect and have been doing so all my devices with ExpressVPN for many years. I'm sitting at this airport and there's nobody here except security guards staring at me as I'm holding a microphone and talking into it. All that while having a 500 megabits download and 100 upload, which is incredible Wi-Fi. I don't think I wanna share exactly the, the location where I'm located, but uh, since this is an ExpressVPN ad and we want to uh, maintain privacy, but it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, there's mountains, there's trees, and here I am holding a microphone, talking with myself, visually embodying the slow decline into madness. Anyway, go to uh, expressvpn.com slash LexPod to get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash LexPod. So instead of doing the physical traveling like I'm doing in order to go to the location, you can use the digital travel that ExpressVPN provides by letting you choose any location you want. It's easy. This episode is also supported by Blinkist, my favorite app for learning new things. Blinkist takes the key ideas from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. They also do the same for podcasts, which is kind of crazy. I really don't know how they're able to summarize podcasts, but they do it. They do it for just a, a few popular podcasts that have a more structured kind of uh, topic-driven presentation. And I think the podcasters themselves actually contribute to the summaries. But anyway, the final result is kind of amazing. I've been doing a lot of reading every single day, and I'm using Blinkist to basically give me a little bit of context for the books that I'm actually not going to read all the way through. And I'm using it to help me select the books that I am going to read all the way through. Go to Blinkist.com slash Lex to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist.com slash Lex. This episode is also sponsored by 8sleep, and it's Pod Pro Mattress. It controls temperature with an app. It's packed with sensors. It can cool down to as low as 55 degrees on each side of the bed separately. As part of the move process, I've actually not had 8sleep as part of my sleep for a few weeks, and now I just got back to using a sleep and it's been like this amazing experience. Like I'm finally home. <laughs> Even though there's air conditioning, all of that kind of stuff, there's nothing like that cool experience of a bed with a warm blanket. It just gives me something to look forward to, both for the power naps and the, the full night's sleep. They have a pot pro cover, so you can just add that to your mattress without having to buy theirs. But their mattress is pretty nice too. I can vouch for that in case you were wondering. <laughs> I can track a bunch of metrics like heart rate variability, 
but cooling alone is honestly worth the money. Like I said, it makes me feel like home. I can't wait. I actually pulled almost the full all-nighter yesterday working, doing a pretty cool thing, but uh, the sleep I got when I finally got a chance to lay down was incredible, and a big part of that is uh, thanks to A-Sleep. So go to asleep.com slash Lex to get a special savings. That's asleep.com slash Lex. I feel like I have to stop doing this ad read because the security guards are starting to get really nervous. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Frank Wolchek. What is the most beautiful idea in physics? The most beautiful idea in physics is that we can get a compact description of the world that's very precise and very uh, full uh, at, at the level of the operating system of the world. Um, that's an extraordinary gift, and we get we get worried when we. Uh, have find discrepancies between our uh, description of the world and, and what's actually observed the, at the level even of a part in a billion. You actually have this quote of, from Einstein that the, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is, it's is that it is comprehensible, something like that. Yes, that's, so that's the most beautiful surprise that I think uh, that, that really was, the, to me, the most profound result of the scientific revolution of this of the 17th century with uh, the shining example of Newtonian physics that you could aspire to completeness, precision, and a concise description of the world, of the operating system. And it's gotten better and better <laughs> over the years, to, and that's the continuing miracle. Now, there are a lot of beautiful sub-miracles, too. Uh, the form of the equations is governed by high degrees of symmetry, and and they have a very surprising kind of mind-expanding structure, especially in quantum mechanics. But if, we ha if I had to say the, the single most beautiful revelation is that, in fact, uh, the world is comprehensible. Would you say that's a fact or a hope? It's a fact. <laughs> we can do, we, you can point to things like uh, the rise of uh, gross, pro gross national products gross, you know, per capita around the world as a result of the scientific revolution. You can see it all around you uh, in, in recent developments with exponent, so exponential production of wealth, control of nature at uh, a, a very profound level where we do things like sense tiny, 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 tiny vibrations to, to tell that there are black holes colliding far away, or we uh, test laws, to, as, as I alluded to, as a part in a billion, and do you know, things in what appear on the surface to be entirely different conceptual universes. I mean, on the one hand, pencil and paper or nowadays computers that, that calculate abstractions, and on the other hand, magnets and accelerators and detectors that look at the behavior of fundamental particles. And 
And these different universes have to agree or else we get very upset. And that's uh, yeah, it's an amazing thing if you think about it. So, and, and it's telling us that we do understand a lot about nature at a very profound level. And uh, there are still things we don't understand, of course, but as we get better and better answers and better and better ability to address difficult questions, we can ask more and more ambitious questions. Well, I guess the hope part of that is because we are surrounded by mystery. So we've, uh, one way to say it, if you look at the growth of uh, GDP, over time that we figured out quite a lot and we're able to in, in, improve the quality of life because of that. And we've figured out some fundamental things about this universe, but we still don't know how much mystery there is. And it's also possible that there's some things that are in fact incomprehensible to both our minds and the tools of science. Like we, the, the, the sad thing is we may not know it because in fact, they are incomprehensible. And that's the open question is, how much of the universe is comprehensible? If we yeah. figured out the the everything, uh, what's inside the black hole and everything that happened at the moment of the Big Bang, does that still give us the key to understanding the human mind and uh, the emergence of all the beautiful complexity we see around us? That's not, uh, like when I when I see these objects, like, uh, I don't know if you've seen them, like cellular automata, mm -hmm. Uh, all, all these kinds of objects where the from simple rules emerges complexity. Yes, it makes you wonder. Maybe it's not reducible to simple, beautiful equations. The whole thing, only parts of it. That's the tension I was getting at with the hope. <laughs> well, when we say the universe is comprehensible, we have to kind of draw careful distinctions about or uh, 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 definitions about what what we mean by by that uh both the universe so, and the and the comprehensive exactly right so uh, the so in certain areas of understanding uh, reality we've made extraordinary progress, I would say, in understanding fundamental physical processes and getting very precise equations that really work and allow us to do uh, the profound sculpting of matter, you know, to make computers and iPhones and everything else, and they really work and they're extraordinary productions. Uh, on the other, but, uh, and th that's all based on the laws of quantum mechanics and, you know, they really, and they really work and, and then, uh, and they give us tremendous control of nature. On the other hand, uh, as I said, as we as we get better answers, we can also ask more ambitious questions. And there are certainly things that have been observed, even in the well, in what would be usually called the realm of physics, that aren't understood. For instance, uh, there seems to be another source of mass in the universe, the so-called dark matter that we don't know what it is, and it's a very interesting question what it is. Uh, then, uh, but also, as you were alluding to, there, there's it's one thing to know the basic equa equations, it's another thing to be able to solve them in, in important cases. So we run, we run up against the limits of that in things like chemistry, where we'd like to be able to design molecules and predict their behavior from the equations. We think the equations could do that in principle, but, but uh, 
in, in practice, it's very challenging to solve them in, in all but very simple cases. Uh, and then there's the other thing, which is that a lot of what we're interested in is uh, historically conditioned. It's not. Uh, it's not a matter of the fundamental equations, but about what has evolved or come out of of the early universe and formed into people and frogs and societies and things. And the laws of physics, the basic laws of physics, only take you so far. In the in that, it kind of provides a foundation, but doesn't really. You need entirely different concepts to deal with uh, those kind of uh, systems. And all we one thing I can say about that is that the laws themselves point out their limitations. That they they right. kind of their laws for dynamical evolution. So they tell you what happens if you have a certain starting point, but they don't tell you what the starting point should be. Right. At least, yeah. Uh, and uh, the other the other thing that emerges from the equations themselves is the. F- phenomena of chaos and uh, sensitivity to initial conditions, which tells us that uh, you have, that there are intrinsic limitations on how well we can spell out the consequences of the laws if we try to apply them. It's the old apple pie. If you wanna, what is it, make an apple pie from scratch, you, you have to build the universe or something like that. <laughs> well, you, you're much better off starting with apples than starting with quarks, <laughs> let's put it that way. In your uh, book, A Beautiful Question, you ask, does the world embody beautiful ideas? So the book is centered around this very interesting question. It's like Shakespeare, you can like dig in and read into all the different interpretations of this question. But at the high level, what to you is the connection between beauty of the world and physics of the world? In a sense, we now have a lot of insight into what the the laws are, the for, the form they take that allow us to understand matter in great depth and control it, as we as we've discussed. Uh, and it's an extraordinary thing how mathematically ideal those equations turn out to be. In the early days of Greek philosophy. Uh, Plato had this model of atoms built out of the five perfectly symmetrical platonic solids. So there was the, somehow the idea that mathematical symmetry uh, should govern the world. And uh, we've outplayed Plato by far <laughs> in modern physics because we have symmetries that are much more extensive, much more powerful, that turn out to be uh, the ingredients out of which we construct our theory of the world. And, and it works. And, uh, the, so that's certainly beautiful. So the the, the math the idea of symmetry, which is uh, a driving inspiration in much of human art, uh, especially a decorative art like a, the Alhambra or in wallpaper designs or things you see around you everywhere, uh, also turns out to be the dominant theme in modern fundamental physics, symmetry and its manifestations. The laws turn out to be very, to have these tremendous amounts of symmetry. You can change the symbols and move them around in different ways and they still have the same consequences. Uh, So that's that's, uh, beautiful. (laughs) And uh, that that, uh, these things, uh, these different 
these concepts that humans find appealing also turn out to be the concepts that govern how the world actually works. And uh, I don't think that's an accident. I think the humans were evolved to uh, be able to interact with the world in, in ways that are, are advantageous and to learn from it. And so we are naturally evolved or designed to, to enjoy beauty and, and to symmetry and this, and the world has it. And that's no, that's why we, that's why we resonate with it. Well, it's interesting that the ideas of symmetry emerge at all, at many levels of the hierarchy of the universe. So you're talking about particles, but it also is at the level of chemistry and biology and um, and the fact that our cognitive, sort of our perception system and whatever our cognition is also finds it appealing or somehow our sense of what is beautiful is grounded in this idea of symmetry or the breaking of symmetry. Yeah. Symmetry is at the core of our conception of beauty, whether it's the breaking or the non-breaking of the symmetry. Yes. It makes you wonder why why? <laughs> like, uh, so I come from Russia in the, and the question of Dostoevsky, he's, he has said that beauty will save the world. Maybe, maybe as a physicist, you can tell me, what do you think he meant by that? I don't, I don't know if it saves the world, but it, it does turn out to be a tremendous source of insight into the world. When we uh, investigate kind of the, the most fundamental interactions, things that are hard to access because they occur at very short distances between uh, a very uh, uh, special kinds of particles whose, whose properties are only revealed at high energies. At a, uh, we don't have much to go on from everyday life, but so we have when we guess what the so we and and the experiments are difficult to do. So you can't you can't really uh, follow a very a wholly empirical procedure to sort of in the Baconi, Baconian style figure out the laws kind of step by step just by accumulating a lot of data. What we actually do is guess. And the guesses are kind of aesthetic, really. What what would be a nice description that's consistent with what we know? And then you try it out and see if it works. And and, and by gosh, it does in 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 some in many profound cases. Uh, so there's that. But there's another source of symmetry which I didn't talk so much about in uh, in a beautiful question, but does. Uh, relate to your comments, and I think very much relates to uh, uh, the source of, of symmetry that we find in biology and uh, in, in in our in our heads, you know, in our brain, <laughs> which is that. Uh, although I well, I, it is discussed a bit in in uh, a beautiful question and and also in fundamentals, is that when you have Symmetry is also a very important uh, means of construction. So when you have, for instance, uh, simple viruses that that need to construct their coat, their protein coat, 
the coats often take the form of platonic solids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the reason is that the viruses are really dumb and they only know how to do one thing. So they make a pentagon, then they make another pentagon, and they make another pentagon, and they all glue together in the same way. And that makes a very symmetrical object, sort of. So the rules of development, when, when you have simple rules and they go, they work again and again, you get symmetrical patterns. That's it's kind of, in, in fact, it's a recipe also for generating fractals, you know, like, like uh, the uh, a kind of broccoli that has all this internal structure. And I wish I, wish I had a picture to show, but I, maybe people remember it from the, from the, uh, uh, from the supermarket. And, and, and you say, how did a vegetable get so intelligent to make such a beautiful <laughs> object with all this fractal structure? And the, 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 the secret is stupidity. You just do the same thing over and over again. And uh, in our brains also, we, you know, we've, we came out, we start from single cells and they reproduce and they, they're, uh, each one does basically roughly the same thing. They, they, uh, the, the program evolves in time, of course, different, uh, different modules get turned on and off genetic, different regions of the genetic code get turned on and off. But, uh, but basically, a lot of the same things are going on, and they're simple things, and so you produce the same patterns over and over again, and that's a recipe for producing symmetry, because you're getting the same thing in, in many, many places. And if you look at, uh, for instance, the beautiful drawings of Ramon Icahal, the great neuroanatomist who drew the structure of different organs like the uh, hippocampus, you see it's very regular, and very intricate and its symmetry in in in, this, in, in that sense it's because it's 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 many repeated units that that uh, you can take from one place to the other and see that they look more or less the same but what you're describing this kind of beauty that we're talking about now is uh, is a very small sample in terms of space time in the, in a very big world <laughs> uh, in a very short brief moment in this long history. In your book, Fundamentals, 10 Keys to Reality, I'd really recommend people read it. Uh, you uh, <laughs> you say that space and time are pretty big or very big. <laughs> How big are we talking about? Like what, uh, can yeah. you draw, can you tell a, a brief history of space and time? It's easy to tell a brief history, but the details get very involved, of course. But uh, one thing I like to say is that uh, if 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 you take a broad enough view, the history of the universe is simpler than the history of Sweden, say, <laughs> <laughs> because you don't you your standards are lower for for. for uh, but just to make it a, a, a quantitative, I'll just give a few highlights, and it's 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 a little bit easier to talk about time. Uh, so let's start with that. The Big Bang occurred. We think the universe was much hotter and denser and more uniform about 13.8 billion years ago. And that's what we call the Big Bang. Uh, and it's been expanding and cooling. The matter in it has been expanding and cooling ever since. So in a real sense, the universe is 13.8 billion years old. That's a big number, kind of hard to think about. A, a nice way to think about it, though, is to map it onto one year. So, if so, let's say the universe and just linearly map the time intervals from 
13.8 billion years onto one year. So the, the Big Bang then is at uh, on January 1st at 12 a.m. Uh, and uh, you wait for quite a long time uh, before the dinosaurs emerge. The dinosaurs emerge on Christmas, it turns out. <laughs> Four months, almost four months later. <laughs> Getting close to the end. <laughs> yes. Getting close to the end. <laughs> and, and the extinction event that uh, let the mammals and ultimately humans inherit the earth from, uh, from the dinosaurs occurred on December 30th. <laughs> and all of human history is a small part of the last day. <laughs> and so, so yes, so, so we, we're occupying only, a, and a human lifetime is a very, very infinitesimal part of this uh, interval of the, this, these gigantic cosmic reaches of time. Uh, and in space, we can tell a very similar story. In fact, a very, uh, it's convenient to think that the size of the universe is the distance that light can travel in 13.8 billion years. That's so it's 13.8 billion light years. That's that's how far you can see out. That's how far things can uh, signals can reach us from. And uh, that is a big distance <laughs> because compared to that, uh, the the universe, the the Earth is a, a fraction of a light second. So again, we, it's really, really big. And so we have, if we want to think about the universe as a whole in space and time, uh, we really need a different kind of imagination. It's not, it's not something you can grasp in terms of psychological time in a useful way you have to think you know you have to use exponential notation and abstract concepts to to really get any uh hold on 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 these vast times and spaces uh on the other hand let me hasten to add that that doesn't make us small or make the time that we have to us small because uh again looking at those pictures of you know what our minds are in some sense the components of our minds these beautiful drawings of the cellular patterns inside the brain you see that there are many 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 processing units and if you analyze how fast they operate I tried to estimate how many thoughts a person can have in a lifetime. That's kind of a fuzzy question, but I'm very proud that I, I was able to define it pretty precisely. And it turns out we can we have time for billions of meaningful thoughts in a lifetime. In a lifetime. So so it's a lot. We shouldn't uh, we shouldn't you, think uh, of ourselves as terribly small, <laughs> either in space or in time, because although we're small in those dimensions compared to the universe, we're, we're large compared to meaningful units of processing information and, and, uh, and being able to conceptualize and understand things. 
Yeah, but 99% of those thoughts are probably food, sex, or internet related. <laughs> well, <laughs> but yeah, well, that's yeah, well, they're not that's right. Only like point one is Nobel Prize winning ideas, but <laughs> that's true. But uh, you know, there's more to life than winning Nobel Prizes. How did you um do that calculation? Can you maybe break that apart a little bit just kind of for fun, oh, in sort of an intuition of yeah, how we calculate uh, the number of thoughts? The number of thoughts, right? They're they're it's it's necessarily imprecise because a lot of things are going on in different ways and what is a thought. But there are several things that point to more or less the same uh, rate of being able to have meaningful thoughts. Uh, for instance, I, I, the one that I think is maybe the most penetrating is uh, how fast we can we can process visual images. How do, how do we do that? Uh, if you've ever watched old movies, you can see that that when, when well any movie in, in fact that in a motion picture is really not a motion picture it's a series of snapshots that are played one after the other and it's the because our brains also work that way we take snapshots of the world integrate over a certain time and then go on to the next one and then by post processing create the illusion of continuity and flow uh we can deal with that and uh the if the flicker rate is too slow, then you start to see that it's not it's a series of snapshots. And you can ask what is the what is the crossover? When does it change from being something that that is matched to our processing speed versus too fast? And and it turns out about 40 per second. And then if you take 40 per second as as how well we how fast we can process visual images, you get to several billions of thoughts. Uh, if you Similarly, if you uh, ask what what are some of the fastest things that people can do, well, you can they can play video games, they can play the piano very fast if if they're skilled at it, and again, you get to similar uh, units. Or how fast can people talk? You get to sim, you know, within a couple of orders of magnitude, you get more or less to the same idea. So. Uh, so that's how you can say that 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 there's there's billions of meaning there's room for billions of meaningful thoughts. Yeah, I won't argue for exactly two billion versus one point eight billion. It's not that kind of question, but but I think any estimate that's reasonable will come out within say a hundred billion and and a hundred million. So it's a lot. <laughs> it would be interesting. To map out for an individual human being the landscape of thoughts that they've sort of traveled. If you think of thoughts as a set of trajectories, uh, what what that landscape looks like. I mean, I've been recently really thinking about uh, this Richard Dawkins idea of memes mm -hmm. and just all this ideas and the evolution of ideas inside of one particular human mind and how they're, they're then changed and evolved by interaction with other human beings. It's interesting to think about. So if you think <laughs> the number is billions, you, th you think there's also social interaction. So these aren't yes. uh, like there's interaction in the same way you have interaction with particles, there's interaction between human thoughts uh, that are perhaps that's that interaction in itself is fundamental to the process of thinking, like without social interaction, 
we would be like stuck, like walking in a circle. We need, yes. we need well, the perturbation of other humans to well, create change and evolution. Once you bring in concepts of uh, interactions and correlations and relations, then you have what's called a combinatorial explosion, <laughs> that the number of possibilities rap expands exponentially, technically, with the number of uh, the number of things you're considering, and. Uh, it can easily, rapidly outstrip these billions, <laughs> these billions of yep. thoughts that we're talking about. So we we definitely uh, cannot, by brute force, master complex situations, and or think about think of all the possibilities in a complex situations. I mean, you know, even even something as relatively simple as chess uh, is still. Uh, something that human beings can't comprehend completely. Even the best players lose, to, still sometimes lose, and they consistently lose to computers these days. Uh, and in, in computer science, there's a concept of NP-complete. So large classes of problems, when you scale them up beyond a, a few individuals, become intractable. And so that in that sense, uh, the world is inexhaustible. <laughs> but And that makes it beautiful that we can make uh, any laws that generalize uh, efficiently and well can compress all of that combinatorial it's, complexity into just like a simple rule. That that in itself is beautiful. It's a happy situation, and it's, I I think that that we can find general principles of sort of of the operating system that are comprehensible, simple, extremely powerful, and let us control things. Uh, very well and, and ask profound questions. And on the other hand, that the world is going to be inexhaustible. <laughs> that, that once we start asking about relationships and how they evolve and social interactions, and the, 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 we'll never have a theory of everything in any meaningful sense because... The, the, of everything, everything. <laughs> truly everything truly is... Everything. <laughs> uh, can I ask you about the Big Bang? Uh, mm. So we talked about the space and time are really big, mm. but then, and we humans give a lot of meaning to the word space and time in our, in our like daily lives. Mm. But then, can we talk about this moment of beginning and how we're supposed to think about it? Mm. That... At the moment of the Big Bang, everything was uh, what, like infinitely small, and then it just blew up. We have to be careful here because there's a uh, there's a, a common misconception that the big th the Big Bang is like the explosion of a bomb in empty space that that uh, right. fills up the surrounding place. It is uh, space. It is yeah. The, as we, as we understand it, it's the fact. It's the 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 fact or the the hypothesis, but well supported up to a point that that uh, that everywhere in the whole universe, early in the history, uh, matter came together into a very hot, very dense. If you run it backwards in time, matter comes together into a very hot, very dense, and yet very homogeneous uh, plasma of all the different kinds of elementary particles and quarks and antiquarks and gluons and photons and electrons and anti-electrons, everything, you know, all of that stuff. But like uh, really hot. Really hot. Really dense. Really hot. We're talking about uh, way, way hotter than the surface of the sun. Uh, you know, 
uh, well, well, in fact, if you take the equations as we as they come, the the prediction is that the temperature just goes to infinity. But then the equations uh, break down. We don't we don't we don't don't really. There are various. The equations become infinity equals infinity, so they don't feel that it's called a singularity. We don't really know. Uh, this is running the equations backwards, so you can't really get a sensible idea of what happened before the Big Bang. We don't, you know, so, the, so we need different equations to address the very earliest moments. Uh, it, uh, but so things were hotter and denser. We don't really know why things started out that way. We do. We have a lot of evidence that they did start out that way. Uh, but since most of the, uh, you know, we don't get to visit there <laughs> and do controlled experiments. Most most of the most of the record is is very very processed, and uh, we have to we have to use uh, very uh, subtle techniques and powerful instruments to to get information that has survived. Get but closer and closer to the Big Bang. Get closer and closer to the, the the beginning of things. And what's revealed there is that, uh, as I said, there, there undoubtedly was a period when everything in the universe that we have been able to look at and understand, and that's consistent with everything, is uh, um, the was in a condition where it was much, much hotter and much, much denser, uh, but still obeying the laws of physics as we know them today. And and then you start with that. So all the matter is in equilibrium. Uh, and then with s small quantum fluctuations and run it forward, and then it produces, in car at least in broad strokes, the universe we see around us today. <laughs> Do you think we'll ever be able to, with the tools of physics, with the way science is, with the way the human mind is, we'll ever be able to get to the moment of the Big Bang in our understanding or even oh. the moment before the Big Bang? Can we understand well, what happened before the Big Bang? I'm I'm optimistic both that we'll be able to uh, measure more, so observe more, and that we'll be able to figure out more. So uh, they're very, very tangible prospects for uh, observing the extremely early universe, so much, even much earlier than we can observe now, uh, through looking at gravitational waves. Mm. Gravitational waves, since they interact so weakly with ordinary matter, uh, Sort of send an unpro uh, uh, a minimally processed sim signal from the Big Bang. It's a very weak signal because it's traveled a long way and diffused over long spaces. But uh, but people are gearing up to try to detect gravitational waves that could have come from the early universe. Yeah, LIGO's incredible engineering project. It's yes, just the most sensitive, <laughs> precise yes devices on Earth. The, the fact that humans can right. build something like that is. Uh, truly awe-inspiring from an engineering perspective. Right, the, and but these gravitational waves from the early universe will probably be of a much longer wavelength than LIGO is capable of sensing. So there's a beautiful project uh, that's contemplated to put lasers 
in different par- different locations in the solar system. You know, mm-hmm. We really, really separated by uh, solar system scale differences, like, like artificial planets or moons mm-hmm. in different places and, and see the tiny motions of those relative to one yeah. another as a signal of, of radiation from the Big Bang. We can also maybe indirectly see the imprint of gravitational waves from the early universe on uh, the photons, the the microwave background radiation that that is our present way of of seeing into the earliest universe. But those those photons interact much more strongly with matter. They're much more strongly processed, so they don't give us directly s- such an unprocessed view of the early universe of the very early universe. But if gravitational waves leave some imprint on that as they move through, uh, we could detect that too. And people are trying, are, you know, as we speak, <laughs> working very hard towards, uh, towards that goal. It's so exciting to think about a sensor the size of a solar system. Like That, uh, that would be a fantastic, I mean, that would be a pinnacle artifact of human endeavor to me. It, it would be such, uh, you know, such an inspiring thing that just, we want to know, and we go to these extraordinary lengths of making gigantic things that are also very sophisticated because what you're trying to do, you, you have to understand how they move, you have to understand the, uh, the properties of light that, that are being used, the interference between light, and, and you have to be able to make the light with lasers and understand the quantum theory and get the timing exactly right. You know, it's an extraordinary endeavor involving all kinds of knowledge from the very strong, very small to the very large, and all in the service of uh, curiosity and built on a grand scale. So, yeah, <laughs> it would, yeah. So it'd make I, me I, proud to be a human if we yeah. if we if we did that. I love that you're inspired both by by the power of theory and the power of experiments. So this is the both both I think are, are exceptionally impressive that the human mind can come up with theories that give us a peek into how the universe works, but also construct tools that are way bigger than uh the the yeah. evolutionary origins we came from right so, and by the way you know the fact that we can design such things and they work yeah is an extraordinary demonstration that we really do understand a lot <laughs> and then so, in, in some ways and it's our ability to answer questions that also leads us to be able to address more ambitious questions. So you, you mentioned that at the at the Big Bang in the early days, um, things were pretty homogeneous. Yes. But uh, here we are sitting on Earth <laughs> to uh, hairless apes, you could say, with microphones. In talking about the brief history of things, you said it's much harder to describe Sweden than it is... Um, <laughs> uh, the, the universe. So there's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of interesting yes. details here. So how does this complexity come to be, do you think? It, it seems like there's these pockets. Yeah. We don't know how rare of like, uh, where well, hairless apes just emerge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then that came from the initial soup that was homogeneous. Was that, uh, is yeah, that an it accident? Was, well, we understand there, we understand in broad outlines how it could happen. We certainly don't understand why it happened exactly in the way it did, or, but, but uh, 
or you know, there, there are certainly open questions about the origins of life and how inevitable the emergence of intelligence was and, and how that happened. But uh, in the very broadest terms, uh, the universe early on was ve- quite homogeneous, but not completely homogeneous. Uh, there are there were part in ten thousand fluctuations in density within this primordial plasma, and uh, as time goes on, there's an instability which causes those density contrasts to increase. There's a gravitational instability where it's denser the gravitational attractions are stronger, and so that brings in more matter and it gets even denser, and so on and so on. So so there's a natural tendency of matter to clump because of gravitational interactions. And then the equation gets complicated <laughs> when hmm. you have lots of things <laughs> clumping together. Uh, then you know, then then we know what the laws are, but we have to, to a certain extent, wave our hands about what 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 happens. But uh, the basic understanding of chemistry says that if things and and the physics of radiation tells us that if as things start to clump together, they can radiate, give off some energy, so they don't just they slow down. They as a result, they lose energy. They can conglomerate together, cool down form things like stars, form things like planets. And so in broad terms, there's no mystery. There's a, you know, that, that, that's what the scenario, that's what the equations tell you should happen. But because it's a, a process involving many, many fundament, individual units, uh, the, the the application of the laws that govern simple individual units to these things is is very delicate, uh, or you know, computationally very difficult, and more profoundly, uh, the equations have this probability of chaos or sensitivity to initial conditions, which tells you tiny differences in the initial state can lead to enormous differences in the subsequent behavior. So, so physics. Fundamental physics at some point says, "Okay, chemists, biologists, this is your problem." <laughs> and and and, uh, and then again, in broad terms, we know how uh, it's conceivable that that the uh, humans and things like that can can uh, that how complex structure can emerge. It's a matter of uh, having the right kind of temperature and the right kind of stuff. So you need uh, you need to be able to make chemical bonds that are reasonably stable and be able to make complex structures. And we're very fortunate that carbon has this ability to make uh, uh, backbones and, and elaborate branchings and things. So you can get complex things that we call biochemistry. And uh, and yet the bonds can be broken a little bit with the help of energetic injections from the sun. So you have to have both the possibility of changing, but also the possible a useful degree of stability. And we know at that very very broad level, physics can tell you that it's conceivable. Yeah. If you want to know what actually what what's what what really happened <laughs> what really can happen the then you have to then you have to work about to go to chemistry if you have to, if you want to know what actually happened then you really have to consult the fossil record and biologists and so so uh, but, but it's it so these these 
ways of addressing the issue are complementary in a sense. They both they uh, they uh, they use different kinds of concepts. They use different uh languages and they address different kinds of questions but they're they're not inconsistent they're mm -hmm. just complementary right. it's, it's kind of interesting to think about those early fluctuations mm. as our earliest ancestors yes that's right so it's far it's amazing to think that uh you know this is the modern answer to the uh or the modern version of uh the what the Hindu philosophers had that art thou, if you ask what okay that <laughs> those those little quantum fluctuations in the early universe are the seeds out of which uh, complexity, including uh, plausibly humans, really evolve. You don't need anything else. That brings up the question of uh, asking for a friend here. If there's uh, you know other pockets of complexity, uh, commonly called as uh, alien, intelligent civilizations out there. Well, we You're, don't know for sure, but I I have a s strong suspicion that the answer is yes, because the, uh, the one case we do have at hand to study here on Earth uh, we sort of know what the conditions were that were helpful to life, the, the right kind of temperature, the right kind of star that, that keeps, maintains that temperature for a long time, the liquid environment of water. Uh, and it, once those conditions emerged on Earth, which was roughly four and a half billion years ago, it wasn't very long before what we call life started to leave relics. So we can find uh, forms of life, primitive forms of life that are almost as old as the Earth itself, in the sense that once the Earth became reason was was turned from a, a a very hot boiling thing and cooled off into a solid mass with with water, uh, life emerged very very quickly. So so it seems that these general conditions for life uh, are enough. To, to make it happen uh, relatively quickly. Now, the other lesson I would I think that one can uh, draw from this one example, it's dangerous to, to draw lessons from one example, but that's all we've got. Uh, and uh, that, that the emergence of intelligent life is a different issue altogether. It, uh, that took a long time and seems to have been pretty contingent <laughs> uh the you know the the for a long time well for most most of the history of life it was single-celled things you know uh, yes. even multicellular life only rose about 600 million years ago so much after you know so uh, and the the uh uh and then Intelligence is kind of a luxury, you know. If you think <laughs> uh, many more kinds of creatures have uh, big stomachs <laughs> than, than big brains, and in fact, uh, most 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 have no brains at all in a, in any reasonable sense. That 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 then, uh, and the dinosaurs ruled for a long, long time, and some of them were pretty smart, but they they were at best 
bird brains because you know birds came from the dinosaurs and uh and uh and it could have stayed that way you know and and then human and the emergence of humans was very contingent and kind of a very very recent development on evolutionary time scales and uh, you can argue about the level of human intelligence, but it's you know I think it's <laughs> that, that, pretty impressive. That, that's what we're talking about, and it's very it's very impressive, and and can ask these kinds of questions and discuss them intelligently. Uh, the uh, so I guess my my so this is a long winded answer or justification of of my feeling is that uh, the conditions for life in some form are probably uh, satisfied in many, many places around the universe, even and even within our galaxy. Uh, I'm not so sure about the emergence of intelligent life or the emergence of technological uh, civilizations. That, that, that seems uh, much, more con much more contingent and special. And we might it's conceivable to me that we're the only example in the galaxy or although yeah i don't know one way or the other i i, I have different opinions on different days of the week but uh, one of the things that worries me in in in, uh, in the spirit of being humble that our particular kind of intelligence is not very special so there's all kinds of different intelligences and yeah. even more broadly there could be many different kinds of life. Yes. So uh, the basic right. definition, and I just had, I think somebody that you know, Sarah Walker, I just had a very long conversation <laughs> with her about even just the very basic question of trying to define what is life from a physics yeah. perspective. Yeah. Even that question within itself, I think one of the most fundamental questions in science and physics and everything is just trying to get a hold trying to get some universal laws around the ideas of what is life because that that kind yeah, of unlocks well, a bunch of things around life intelligence consciousness all those kinds of things i agree with you in a sense but i think that's a dangerous question because the the answer can't be any more precise than the question and the uh the the question what is life kind of assumes that we have a definition of life and that it's a natural phenomena that that can be distinguished and but that really there are edge cases like viruses and uh some people would like to say that uh, electrons have consciousness and they, you know so you can't if you really have fuzzy concepts it's uh it's very hard to to reach precise kinds of scientific answers but i think there's a very fruitful question that's adjacent to it which is uh, has been pursued in different forms for uh quite a while and is now becoming very sophisticated and reaching in new directions and that is what are the states of matter that are possible you know so in in high school or grade school you learn about solid li solids liquids and gases but that really just scratches the surface of different ways that are distinguishable that matter can form into uh, uh, macroscopically different meaningful patterns that we call phases of matter. And then there, there are precise definitions of what we mean by phases of matter and, uh, and that have been worked out and fruitful over, over the decades. And we were discovering new states of matter all the time and kind of having to work at what we mean by 
matter. We're discovering the capabilities of matter to organize in interesting ways. And uh, some of them, like liquid crystals, are uh, important ingredients of life. Our cell membranes are liquid crystals, and and that's very important to the way they work. Recently, there's been a development in where we're talking about uh, states of matter that not only not that are not static, but that have dynamics that have that uh, have characteristic patterns not only in space but in time. These are called time crystals, and that's that's been a development that's just in the last decade or so. It's, it's really really flourishing, uh, and so. Uh, is there a state of matter that corresponds, or a group of states of matter that corresponds to life? Uh, maybe, but, but the answer can't be any more definite than the question. I'm so. I mean, I, I got to push back on the the, the, the quite. Those are just words. I mean, I, I, I disagree with you. The 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 question points a di- to a direction. The answer might be able to be, to be more precise than the question because well, because uh, just as you're saying, there there's a that we could be discovering certain characteristics and patterns that are associated with a certain type of matter, uh, macroscopically speaking, and that that we can then well, uh, be able to post facto say, this is, let's assign this, the word life to yeah, this well, kind of matter. I agree with that completely. That, <laughs> that's what that's, uh, but that, that's, so it's not a disagreement. It's very frequent in physics that, or in science that, uh, words that are in common use gets get refined and reprocessed into scientific terms that's happened for things like force and energy uh and so we in a way we we find out what the useful definition is uh or symmetry for instance and the common usage may be quite different from the scientific usage but the scientific usage is special and takes on a life of its own and we find out what the the useful version of it is uh what the 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 fruitful version of it is so i do think so in that spirit i think if we uh can identify states of matter that or linked states of matter that can carry on processes of uh, self-reproduction and development and, and information processing, we should say we we might be tempted to classify those as things as life. <laughs> yeah. Well, can I ask you about the craziest one, which is uh, the one we know maybe least about, which is consciousness? Is mm-hmm. it possible that there are certain kinds of matter would be able to classify? as uh, conscious, meaning yeah. like, the, so there's uh, the panpsychists, right? <laughs> the philosophers yeah. who kind of try to imply that uh, all matter has some degree of consciousness and yeah. you can almost construct like a physics of consciousness. Yeah. Do you, um, again, we're in such early days of this, but nevertheless, it seems useful to talk about. Is, is there some sense from a physics well, perspective to make sense of consciousness? Is there some well, hope? again, consciousness is uh, imprecise—a a, a very imprecise word and loaded with uh, 
connotations that I think we should we w- don't want to start a scientific analysis with that. I don't think uh, it, it's often been important in science to start with simple cases and work up uh, consciousness. I think what most people think of when you talk about consciousness is okay. I'm. What am I doing in the in the world? <laughs> this, this is my experience. I have a rich experience, rich inner life and experience of, and uh, where is that in the equations? And I think that's a great question, a great great question. And actually, I think I'm gearing up to spend part of the. the I mean, uh, to try to address that in coming years. One version of asking that question, just as you said now, is what is the simplest. Yeah, formulation of well, that, uh, that to study. I, I know, think study. I think I'm much more comfortable with the idea of studying self-awareness mm. as opposed to consciousness, because that that sort of gets rid of the mystical <laughs> aura of the thing. And self-awareness is, uh, in simple, ca- you know, the uh, I think uh, contiguous at least with ideas about feedback. So if you have a system that looks at its own state and responds to it. That's a kind of self-awareness. And more sophisticated versions could be like in information processing things, computers that look into their own internal state and do something about it. And I think that could also be done in neural nets. This is called recurrent neural nets, which are hard to understand and kind of a frontier. <laughs> the, 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 uh, uh, so I think understanding those and gradually building up a kind of uh, a profound ability to, un- to uh, conceptualize different levels of self-awareness. What do you have to not know and what do you have to know? And when do you know that you don't know it? Or when do you, what do you think you know that you don't really know? And the, 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 these, uh, I think, uh, clarifying those issues, when we clarify those issues and get a rich theory around uh, self-awareness, I think the, the that will illuminate the questions about consciousness in a way that, you know, scratching your chin and talking about qualia and blah, 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 blah is never going to do. Well, I also have a, a different approach to the whole thing. So there, there's, uh, from a robotics perspective, you can engineer things that exhibit yes. qualities of consciousness without understanding uh, well the how things work. And from that perspective, you... Uh, it's like a back door, yeah. like enter through the psychology door. Uh, Precisely. The, the cognitive science I think, door. Yeah, I think we're on, the, we're on the same wavelength here. I think that, uh, and let me, let me just add one comment, which is, uh, I think we should try to understand consciousness as we experience it uh, in, in, as, uh, in evolutionary terms and ask ourselves why why does it happen? This thing seems and useful. Why is it useful? Why is it useful? Question. <laughs> I think we've got a conscious eye watch here. <laughs> Interesting question. Thank you, Siri. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, the, uh, 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 get back. I'll get back to you later. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, um, and I think what we're going to... I'm morally certain that what's going to emerge from analyzing recurrent neural nets and 
uh, robotic design and advanced computer design is that having this kind of looking at the internal state in a structured way that that doesn't look at everything this guy has it's enca encapsulated looks at highly processed information is very selective and makes choices without knowing how they're made so there'll also be an unconscious i think that that is going to be turn out to be really essential to doing efficient information processing mm. and that's why it evolved <laughs> because it's 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 helpful in uh, because brains come at a high cost yeah. so there has to be good, <laughs> there has to be a good why and there's a reason yeah they're rare in evolution uh you and uh big brains are rare in evolution and they they come at a big cost you I mean if you you they 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 have high metabolic demands uh they require you know very active lifestyle warm-bloodedness uh and uh, and take take away from the ability to support metabolism of digestion and so so it's it's uh uh it comes at a high cost it has to it has to pay back yeah i think it has a lot of value in social interaction so i actually am spending yeah. the rest of the day today and uh with uh, our friends uh, that are our legged friends in robotic form at boston dynamics uh-huh and I think, so my probably biggest passion is human-robot interaction, and it, it seems that consciousness from the perspective of the robot is very useful yes. to improve the human-robot interaction experience. Uh, the First, the display of consciousness, but then to me there's a gray area between the display of consciousness and consciousness itself. If you think of consciousness from an evolutionary perspective, it seems like a useful tool in human communication. So yes, it's, um, a, it's certainly well. Whatever consciousness is, will turn out to be. Yeah. I, I think uh, addressing it through its use. Yes, and working up from simple cases, and also working up from engineering experience in trying to do um, efficient computation, including efficient management of social interactions is going to really shed light on these questions, as I said, in a way that sort of musing abstractly about consciousness never would. So as I mentioned, I talked to Sarah Walker, mm -hmm. and first of all, she says, hi, spoke very highly <laughs> of you. Thanks. One of her concerns about physics and physicists and humans is that uh, we may not fully understand the system that we're inside of, meaning like, there, there may be limits to the kind of physics we do in trying to understand the system of which we're part of. So like oh. the the observer is also the observed. And in that sense, it, it seems like the, the um, our tools of understanding the world, I mean, this is mostly centered around the questions of what is life, mm -hmm. trying to understand the patterns that, uh, that are characteristic of life and intelligence, all those kinds of things. Um, we we're not we're not using the right tools because we're in the system. Is there is there something that resonates with you there? Almost like well, yeah, yes. We we do have we we have limitations, of course, uh, in the amount of information we can process. 
on the other hand, we can get help from our silicon friends, and we uh, we can get help from all kinds of instruments that make up for, for our perceptual deficits, and uh, we have to. And we can use at a conceptual level, we can use different kinds of concepts to address different kinds of questions. So I'm not sure exactly what problem she's talking about. It's a problem akin to uh, an organism living on a, in a 2D plane trying to understand a, th a three-dimensional world. Well, we can do that. I mean, you know, we, we live, in fact, we, you know, for practical purposes, most of our experience is two-dimensional. It's hard to move vertically. And yet we've produced conceptually a three-dimensional symmetry. And in fact, four-dimensional space-time. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, by thinking in appropriate ways and using instruments and, look, demand, and getting consistent accounts and rich accounts, we, we find out what concepts are uh, 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 necessary. And uh, I don't see any end in sight of the process or any uh, showstoppers because... I I, let me give you an example. I mean, for instance, uh, uh, QCD, our theory of the strong interaction, has nice equations, which I helped to discover. What's, <laughs> what's QCD? Quantum chromodynamics. So it's our theory of the strong interaction, the interaction that is responsible for nuclear physics. So it's the interaction that governs how quarks and gluons interact with each other and make uh, make protons and neutrons and all the strong uh, the, the related particles and, and many things in physics. It's one of the four basic forces of nature as we presently understand it. Uh, and uh, so we have beautiful equations which we can test in very special circumstances uh, uh, using at high, high, high energies, at accelerators. So we certain that these equations are correct you know prizes are given for it and so and people try to knock it down and they can't and yeah they they they, they uh uh but uh but the situations in which we can calculate the consequences of these equations are very limited so for instance no one has been able to demonstrate that this theory which is built on quarks and gluons which no one which you don't observe <laughs> actually produces protons and neutrons and the things you do observe this is called the problem of confinement uh, so no one's been able to prove that analytically in a way that a human can understand on the other hand we can take these equations to a computer to gigantic computers and compute and by god you get the world from it. <laughs> the, so these equations, in a way that we don't understand in terms of human concepts, we, can, we, we can't do the calculations, but our machines can do them. So with the help of what I like to call our silicon friends and their, their descendants in the future, we can understand in a different way that allows us to understand more. But I don't think we'll ever, no, no human is ever going to be able to, to solve those equations in the same way. So, so but, but I think that's, you know, when we find limitations to our natural abilities, we can 
try to find works workarounds. And sometimes that's appropriate concepts, sometimes it's appropriate instruments, sometimes it's a combination of the two. But I think uh, uh, it's premature to uh, get defeatist about it. I, I don't <laughs> see any, any, I don't see any, uh, any logical contradiction or, or paradox or limitation that, that uh, will bring this process to a halt. Well, I think the idea is to continue thinking outside the box in different directions, meaning well, just like how ma the math allows us to think in multiple dimensions outside of our perception system, uh, sort of thinking, uh, you know, coming up with new tools of mathematics or computation or all those kinds of things to do. To, 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 to take different perspectives on our universe. Well, right? I'm all for that, you know, and I, I kind of have even elevated it into a principle, which is of complementarity following Bohr, that there are, you need different ways of thinking, even about the same things, in order to do justice to their reality and answer different kinds of questions about them. I mean, uh, we've several times alluded to the fact that human beings are hard to understand and the concepts that you use to understand human beings if you want to prescribe drugs for them or uh, see what's going to happen if if they move very fast or get ex or are exposed to radiation and so that requires one kind of thinking that's very physical uh, based uh, based on the fact that the uh, the materials that we're made out of on the other hand, if you want to understand how a person's going to behave in a different kind of situation, uh, you need entirely different concepts from psychology. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. You can have very different ways of addressing the same material that are useful for different purposes, right? Can you describe this idea, which is fascinating, of uh, complementarity a little bit? Sort of, uh, first of all, what. Uh, State as the principle, what is it? And second of all, what are good examples? Starting from quantum mechanics, yeah. you still mentioned psychology. Let's talk about this more. It's like one in your new book, one of the most fascinating ideas, actually. I think it's a wonderful, yeah. It's, it's sort of, to me, it's, it's, well, it's the culminating chapter of the book. And I think uh, since the whole book is about the big lessons or big takeaways from profound understanding of the physical world that we've understood that we've achieved uh including that it's mysterious in some ways the uh, uh this was the the the, the final the overarching uh lesson complementarity and uh it's a approach it's, it's so unlike some of these other things, which are just facts about the world, like the world is both big and small in different sessions, and is big, but we're not small, things, things we talked about earlier, uh, and the fact that the universe is comprehensible and how complexity could emerge from simplicity. And so those things are, uh, in, some, in the broad sense, facts about the world. Uh, complementarity is more an attitude towards the world, that is encouraged <laughs> yeah. by the facts about the world. And uh, it's the idea, the concept or the approach that, or the realization that uh, it can be appropriate and useful and inevitable and unavoidable <laughs> to use very different descriptions of the same 
object or the same system or the same situation uh, to answer different kinds of questions that may be very different and even uh, mutually uninterpretable, immutually uh, uh, incomprehensible. Uh, but both correct somehow. But both correct and, and sources of different kinds of insight. Which is so weird. Yeah, well. But it seems to work in so many cases. It works in many cases, and I think it's uh, it's a deep fact about the world and how we should approach it. It's most rigorous form, where it's actually a theorem, if quantum mechanics is correct, <laughs> occurs in quantum mechanics, where the primary description of the world is in terms of wave functions, but let's not talk about the world. Let's just talk about a an, a particle, an <laughs> electron. Okay, it's 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 the primary description of that electron is its wave function, and the wave function can be used to predict where it's going to be, and with different if you observe with it'll be in different places with different probabilities, or how fast it's moving, and it'll also be moving in different ways with different probabilities. That's what quantum mechanics says. And you can predict either set of probabilities. If you know what's gonna happen if I make uh, an observation of the position or the velocity. Uh, but, so the wave function gives you ways of doing both of those, but to do it, to get those predictions, you have to process the wave function in different ways. You process it one way for position and in a different way for momentum. And those ways are mathematically incompatible. It's like, you know, it's like you have a stone and you can sculpt it into a Venus de Milo or you can sculpt it into David, but you can't do both. You can, uh, and, uh, and that's an example of complementarity. You, but to answer different kinds of questions, you have to analyze the system in different ways that are... Uh, mutually incompatible, but both valid to answer different kinds of questions. So in that case, it's a theorem, but I think it's a much more widespread phenomena that applies to many cases where we can't prove it as a theorem, but uh, it's a piece of wisdom, if you like, and, and ap uh, appears to be a, a very important insight. Do you? Uh... Or, and if you ignore it, you can get very confused and uh, um, uh, misguided. Do you think this is um, a useful hack for ideas that we don't fully understand? Or is this somehow a fundamental property of all or many ideas that you can take m multiple perspectives and they're both true? Well, I think it's both. <laughs> and, uh, so it's both the answer to all questions. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's not either or. It's both. It's paralyzing to think that that we live in a world that's fundamentally like surrounded by complementary ideas, like uh, because it, it uh, we want universe. We, we somehow want to attach ourselves to absolute truths, and absolute truths certainly don't like the idea of complementarity. Yes, Einstein was very uncomfortable with complementarity. And in a broad sense, the famous Bohr-Einstein debates We're revolved honest. around this question of whether the complementarity that is a 
foundational feature of quantum mechanics as we have it was is uh, uh, a permanent feature of of the universe and the, our description of nature. And so far, quantum mechanics wins, <laughs> and uh, it's, well, it's, it's gone it's, from triumph to triumph. Whether right. complementarity is rock bottom, I guess we, you know, you can never be sure. I mean, but but uh, it looks awfully good, and it's been very successful. And certainly, its uh, complementarity has been extremely useful and fruitful in in that domain, uh, including you know one some of Einstein's attempts to challenge it with like the famous Einstein Podolsky Rosen experiment turned out to be confirmations of that that uh, ha- have have been uh, useful in themselves but so thinking about these things was fruitful but not in the way that Einstein hoped the the uh, yeah so so as I said in 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 the case, of uh, quantum mechanics and this uh, dilemma or dichotomy between processing the wave function in different ways, it's a theorem. They're mutually incompatible and that the physical correlate of that is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle that you can't have position and momentum determined at once. Uh, But uh, in other cases like one that I like to talk, like to think about, is or like to point out as an example is is free will and determinism. It's much less of a theorem <laughs> and more more a uh, more a uh, a kind of uh, uh, way of thinking about things that I think is uh, reassuring and avoids. Uh, a lot of unnecessary quarreling and confusion. The quarreling I'm okay with, and the confusion I'm okay with. I mean, people debate about difficult ideas, and, but the the question is whether it could be almost a, a fundamental truth. I think it is a fundamental that truth. Free will is both an illusion and not. Yes, I think that's correct. And I, Lodi, th- there's a reason why people say quantum mechanics is weird, and co- complementarity is is, is is a big part of that. You know, to to say that the our actual whole world is weird, the whole hierarchy of the universe is weird in this kind of particular way, and it's it's quite profound, but it's also um, humbling because it's like we're we're never going to be on sturdy ground in the way that humans like to be. It's like you have to embrace that. Uh, well, this 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 whole thing is 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 a unst- like unsteady well, mess. It's one of it's one of many lessons in humility that that we uh, run into in profound understanding of the world. I mean, uh, the Copernican revolution was one. That's that the Earth is not the center of the universe. Uh, Darwinian evolution is another, that uh, humans are not the pinnacle of, uh, of, uh, you know, of, of God's creation. Uh, the, the, uh, and uh, the apparent result of uh, uh, deep understanding of physical reality, that the mind emerges from matter and human, there's, you know, there's there's no 
no call on special life forces or souls. Uh, these are all lessons in humility. And I actually find complementarity a, uh, a liberating concept. It's, it's uh, okay, you know. We, yeah, it is in a way. There's a story about Dr. Johnson, and he's talking with Boswell, and Boswell was, they were discussing a sermon that they both both heard, and the, the, the sort of culmination of, of the sermon was the, the, the speaker saying, I accept the universe. And Dr. Johnson said, well, he damn well better. <laughs> and and you know, there's, a certain, uh, there's a certain joy in accepting the universe because it's mind expanding. And, uh, you know, and, and, and to me, complementarity also suggests tolerance, suggests opportunities for understanding different different understanding things in different ways that add uh add to rather than uh, detract from uh understanding so uh i think it's it's an op it's an opportunity for mind expansion and demanding that there's only one way that to, to think about things can be very limiting on the free will one that's a trippy one though i think <laughs> to think like i am the decider of my own actions and at well, the same time i'm not is uh it is tricky well, to think about but it's there does seem to be some kind of profound truth in that i get well i think it is tied up it will turn out to be tied up when we understand things better with these issues of self-awareness and think so. and where we get what, what what we perceive as making choices what does that really mean and what's going on under the hood and, and uh, but I'm I'm speculating about a future understanding that's not in place but at present. Your sense there will always be a like as you dig into the self awareness thing, there'll always be some places where complementarity is going to show up. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean there will be. Uh, how should I say? There'll be kind of a God's eye view, which sees everything that's going on in the computer or the the, the brain. And then there's the brain's own view, or the or the the central processor, or whatever it is that's the, what we call the, the 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 self, the consciousness, that's all only aware of a very small part of it. And those are very different. Those are the, 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 so uh, the God's eye view can be deterministic, while the the uh, the, the self view sees free will and wow. it, uh, that's i i'm pretty sure that's how it's going to work out actually and, but as as it as it stands free will is a concept that we definitely at least i feel i definitely experience i can choose to do one thing than another and other people i think are sufficiently similar to me that i i have i trust that they feel the same way uh uh and it's an, an essential concept in psychology and law and so forth. But uh, at the same time, I think that mind emerges from matter and that there's an alternative description of matter that's uh, you know up to subtleties about quantum mechanics, which I don't think are relevant here, uh, really is deterministic. Let me ask you about some particles. Okay. <laughs> First, the absurd question, almost like a, 
a question that like Plato would ask. What is the smallest thing in the universe? As far as we know, the the um, fundamental particles out of which we build our most successful description of nature are points. They have zero. They have don't have any internal structure. That's they. Uh, so that's as small as can be. <laughs> to uh, so, what does that mean operationally? That means if you that they obey equations that describe entities that are singular concentrations of energy, momentum, angular momentum, the things that particles have, but localized at individual points. Now, uh, that mathematical structure is only revealed partially in the world because to to process the wave function in a way that 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 accesses information about the precise position of things, you have to apply a lot of energy. And that's not, you know, we, that's an idealization that you can apply infinite amount of energy to determine a precise position. But at the mathematical level, uh, we build the world out of particles that are points. So do they actually exist? And what are we talking about? So like- Oh, they exist. So, so let me ask sort of, uh, do quarks exist? Yes. <laughs> do <laughs> electrons exist? Yes. Do photons exist? Yes. But what does so, it mean for them to exist? Okay. So, well, the hard answer to that, the precise answer, is that uh, we construct the world out of equations that contain entities that uh, are reproducible, that exist in vast numbers throughout the universe, uh, that have definite properties of mass, spin, uh, and a few others that uh, we call electrons. And the, what, what an electron is is defined by the equations that it satisfies theoretically. And we find that there are many, many exemplars of that, of, of that entity in, in the physical world. So... In, elect in the case of electrons, we can, you know, isolate them and study them in individual ones in great detail. We can check that they all actually are identical, uh, and that's why chemistry works. And yes, so, so, so that in that case, uh, it's very tangible. Similarly, with photons, you can study them individually. They're the units of light, uh, and. Uh, nowadays, it's very practical to study individual photons and determine their uh, their spin and their other basic properties, and uh, the, uh, and check out the equations in great detail. For quarks and gluons, which are the other two main ingredients of uh, our model of matter, that's so successful. Uh, it's a little more complicated because the quarks and gluons. Uh, that appear in our equations uh, don't appear directly as particles you can isolate and study individually. They always occur uh, within uh, uh, bound, what are called bound states or structures like protons. A proton, roughly speaking, is composed of three quarks and a lot of gluons. But we can detect them in a remarkably direct way, actually, nowadays. Whereas at relatively low energies, uh, the behavior of quarks is complicated. 
at high energies, they can prop they can propagate through space relatively freely uh, for a while, and we can see their tracks. So uh, ultimately, they get recaptured into protons and other mesons and funny things. But for a short time, they propagate freely, and while that happens, we can take snapshots and see see their manifestations. Uh, this is the, actually this kind of thing is exactly what I got the Nobel Prize for <laughs> predicting that this would work, and similarly for gluons. Although you you can't uh, you can't isolate them as individual particles and study them in the same way that we study electrons. Say uh, you can use them to as use them theoretically as entities out of which you build tangible description uh, tangible things that we actually do observe. Uh, but also you can, uh, at accelerators at high energy, you can liberate them for brief periods of time and study how they, that, 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 and, and get convincing evidence that they, 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 they leave tracks and, and you can get convincing evidence that they were there and, and have the properties that, that we wanted them to have. Can we talk about asymptotic freedom, this very idea that you won the Nobel Prize for? Yeah. So it describes a very weird effect. To me, uh, the the weird in the following way. So the, the the you know the way I think of most forces or interactions, the closer you are, the stronger the effect, the the, the stronger the force. Yeah. Right. With with quarks, uh, the closer they are, the the less sort of the strong interaction. Yeah. And in fact, they're basically act like free particles when they're very close. That's right, yes. But this requires a huge amount of energy. Like, can you describe me um, why, how does this even work? <laughs> well, how weird it is? A proper description m must bring in uh, quantum mechanics and relativity and it's, uh, so a, a proper description and, and equations. So a proper description really is is probably uh, more 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 than we have time for, and, and uh, we require quite a bit of patience on your part. But well, uh, how does relativity come into play? Wait, wait a minute. Oh, relativity is important because uh, when when we talk about uh, trying to think about short distances, we have to think about uh, very large momenta and very large momenta are connected to very large energy in relativity. And so the connection between how things behave at short distances and how things behave at high energy uh, really uh, is connected through relativity in sort of a, a slightly backhanded way. Quantum mechanics indicates that short to get to analyze short distances, uh, you need to bring in probes that uh, carry a lot of momentum. This again is related to uncertainty because uh, it's the fact that you have to bring in a lot of momentum that interferes with the possibility of determining uh, position and momentum at the same time. If you want to determine position, you have to use instruments that bring in a lot of momentum. And because of that, those same instruments can't also measure momentum because they're disturbing the momentum. <laughs> that. that uh, and then the momentum brings in energy, and yeah. So 
so that there's also the effect that asymptotic freedom comes from uh, the possibility of spontaneously making uh, quarks and gluons for short amounts of time that that fluctuate into existence and out of existence, uh, and uh, the fact that that can be done with a very little amount of energy and and uncertainty and energy translates into uncertainty in time. So if you do that for a short time, you can do that. Uh, well, it's, it's all it comes in a package, and you can you can. So uh, I told you it would take a while to really un, to really explain, but the uh, but but the results can be understood. I mean, we can state the results uh, pretty simply. I think so. Uh, in everyday life, we do encounter some forces that increase with distance and kind of turn off at short distances. That's the way rubber bands work, if you think about it. <laughs> or, uh, you, if you pull them hard, they they, they resist, and, but but they get flabby if if if, if the rubber band is not not pulled. Uh, and so there are that can happen. Uh, in the physical world, but what's what's really difficult is to see how that could be a fundamental force that's yes. consistent with everything else we know, and that that's what asymptotic freedom is. It says that uh, there are particular there's a very particular kind of fundamental force that involves special particles called gluons with very special properties that uh, enables that kind of behavior. So. There were experiment at the time we did our work. There were experimental indications that quarks and gluons did have this kind of property, but uh, there were no equations that were capable of capturing it. And we found the equations and showed how they work and showed how they that they were basically unique. And this led to a complete theory of how the strong interaction works, which is the quantum chromodynamics uh, we mentioned earlier. And so, uh, so that's the phenomenon that that quarks and gluons interact very, very weakly when they're close together. That's connected through relativity with the fact that they also interact very, very weakly at high energies. So, if you have so at high energies, uh, the simplicity of the fundamental interaction gets revealed. You know, at the time we did our work. The, the clues were very subtle, but nowadays at high, at what are now high energy accelerators, it's all obvious. So we would have had a much well, somebody would have had a much easier time. <laughs> Twenty years later, looking at the data, you can sort of see the quarks and gluons. As I mentioned, they leave these short tracks that you, uh, it would have been much much easier. But but we from fundamental from indirect clues, we were able to piece together enough to make that behavior a prediction rather than a uh, post-diction, right? So it becomes obvious at high energies. It becomes very obvious. When when we first did this work, it was uh, frontiers of high energy physics. And at big international conferences, there would always be sessions on testing QCD and whether these whether this proposed description of the strong interaction was in fact correct and so forth. And it was very exciting. There were big, but uh, nowadays the same kind of work, but much more precise with calculations to more accuracy and experiments that are much more uh, precise. 
and comparisons that are very precise. Uh, now it's called calculating backgrounds because <laughs> it's uh, because yeah. people take this for granted and and want to and want to see deviations from the theory, which would be which would be the, the new discoveries. Yeah, the cutting edge becomes the foundation. The foundation becomes boring. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, is is there some for basic explanation purposes? Is there something to be said about uh, strong interactions? In the context of the the strong nuclear force for the for the attraction between protons, yeah, well, and neutrons versus the the interaction between quarks within protons. Yeah, itself. well, quarks and gluons have the same relation, basically, to nuclear physics as electrons and photons have to atomic and molecular physics. So. Atoms and photons are the dynamic entities that really come into play in chemistry and, and, and atomic physics. Of course, you have to have the atomic nuclei, but those are small and relatively inert, really the dynamical part. <laughs> and you know, for, for most purposes of chemistry, you just say you have this tiny little nucleus, which, which QCD gives you. <laughs> Don't worry about it. it just, it's there. The real, the real action is the electrons moving around and exchanging and things like that. Uh, the, uh, but, okay, but we wanted to understand the nucleus too. And uh, so atoms base are sort of quantum mechanical clouds of electrons held together by electrical forces, which is photons, and then this radiation, which is also another aspect of photons. That's where all the fun happens is the electrons and the photons. And yeah, all that kind of that's stuff. right. And the, nucle the nucleus are kind of the, the, uh, the well, they're, they're necessary. They give the positive charge and most of the mass of matter, uh, but they don't, since, since they're so heavy, they don't move very much in chemistry, and uh, uh, I'm oversimplifying drastically. But they're not <laughs> contributing much but to the interaction in chemistry. They, 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 for most purposes in chemistry, you can just idealize them as concentrations of positive mass and charge that are, that are uh, 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 you don't have to look inside, but people are curious what's, what's inside, what really, <laughs> and, and uh, that, and that was a big thing on the agenda of 20th century physics starting in the 19, well, starting with the 20th century and uh, unfolding throughout of trying to understand what forces held the atomic nucleus together, what it was. And so, uh, anyway, the, the, emerge, the story that emerges from QCD is that very similar to the way that well, broadly similar to the way that uh, uh, clouds of electrons held together by electrical forces uh, give you atoms and ultimately uh, mo molecules, uh, protons and neutrons are like atoms made now out of quarks, quark clouds held together by gluons, which are like like the, like the photons that, that will give the electric forces, but this is giving a different force, the strong force. And, uh, and the residual forces between protons and neutrons that uh, uh, are left over from the, the basic binding are like the residual forces between atoms that give molecules, but in the case of protons and neutrons, it gives you atomic nuclei. So again, for definitional purposes, uh, QCD, quantum chromodynamics, is basically the physics of strong interaction. 
Yeah, we understand. We now would understand. Would I think most physicists would ju- would say it's the theory of quarks and gluons and how they interact. <laughs> but okay. it's it's a very precise, and I think it's fair to say, very beautiful theory based on mathematical symmetry of a high order. Uh, and another thing that's beautiful about it is that it's kind of in the same family as electrodynamics the conceptual structure of this of the equations are very similar they're based on having particles that respond to charge in a, a very symmetric way in the case of electrodynamics it's photons that respond to electric charge in the case of quantum chromodynamics there are three kinds of charge that we call colors but they're nothing like colors. They really are like different kinds of charge. <laughs> but uh, they rhyme with the same kind of, uh, like a similar kind of dynamics. Similar kind of dynamics. I call, I say, like, I like to say that QCD is like QED on steroids. <laughs> and instead of one photon, you have eight gluons. Instead of one charge, you have nice. three color charges. But there's a strong family resemblance between. <laughs> <laughs> but the context in which uh, QCD does its thing is at, at much higher energies. Like that's where it comes to. Well, life. it's that's a stronger it. force, so that to to access how it works and kind of pry things apart, you have to inject more energy. And so that that, that gives us, um, in some sense a hint of uh, how things were in the earlier universe. Yeah, well, in that regard, asymptotic freedom is a tremendous blessing because it means things get simpler at high energy. And the universe was born free. Born free, that's very good, <laughs> yes. The universe okay. was born. So, so in atomic physics, I mean, a similar thing happens in the theory of stars. Stars are hot enough that... Uh, the interactions between electrons and photons are, they're, they're liberated. They don't form atoms anymore. They make a plasma, which in some ways is simpler to understand. You don't have complicated chemistry. And in the early universe, according to QCD, similarly, atomic nuclei dissolved into the constituent quarks and gluons, which are moving around very fast and interacting in relatively simple ways. And so this, uh, this opened up the early universe to scientific calculation. Can I ask you about some other weird particles that make up our universe? Uh What are axions and uh, what is the strong CP problem? Uh, Okay, so uh, let me start with what the strong CP problem is. Uh, First of all, well, C is charge conjugation, which is the transformation uh, the the notional transformation, if you like, that changes all particles into their antiparticles. And uh, the concept of C symmetry, charge conjugation symmetry, is that if you do that, uh, you find the same laws would work. <laughs> uh, so the laws are symmetric if the behavior that particles exhibit is the same as the, part of, as the behavior you get with all their antiparticles. Uh, then P is parity, which is uh, also called spatial inversion. It's basically looking at a mirror universe and saying that the laws that are obeyed in a mirror universe, when you look at the, the, the mirror images, obey the same laws as the, as the sources of their 
images. There's no way of telling left from right, for instance, that the laws don't distinguish between left and right. Uh, now, in the mid-20th century, people discovered that both of those are not quite true. <laughs> that <laughs> really the the equation that that the mirror universe, the, the universe that's that you see in a mirror is not going to obey the same laws as the uh as the the uh universe that 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 we actually exhibit uh, and and interpret you could you would be able to tell if you did the right kind of experiments which was the mirror and which was the real thing uh anyway that so that's the parody and they show that the parody, parody doesn't necessarily hold it doesn't quite hold and that 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 and examining uh, what the exceptions are turned out to be to lead to all kinds of insight about the nature of fundamental interactions, especially the properties of neutrinos and the weak interaction. It's a long story, but it's a, a very it's a. So, so you just define the C and the P, the yeah. conjugation, the yeah. charge conjugation. Now that I've done that, I want to. What's the problem? Shove them off. <laughs> okay, great. Because <laughs> it's easier to talk about T, which is time reversal symmetry. We have very good reasons to think. Uh, CPT is a an accurate symmetry of nature. It's on the same level as relativity and quantum mechanics, basically. So that better be true. Uh, so it's symmetric have, when you when you do conjugation parity and time and time and space reversal. If you do all three, then you get the same physical consequences. Now, so but that means that CP is the, is equivalent to T. But but what's observed in the world is that T is not quite an accurate symmetry of nature either. So most phenomena uh, of at the fundamental level, so interactions among elementary particles and the basic gravitational interaction, uh, if you ran them backwards in time, you'd get the same laws. So if again going back, unless this time we don't talk about a a mirror, but we talk about a movie. If you take a movie and then run it backwards, <laughs> that's the time reversal. Uh, it's good to think about a mirror in time. Yeah, it's like a mirror in time. If you uh, if you run run the movie backwards. It would look very strange if you were looking at complicated objects and, uh, you know, a Charlie Chaplin movie or whatever. They, they, it would look very strange if you ran it backwards in time. But at the level of basic interactions, if you were able to look at the atoms and the and the quarks involved, they would obey the same laws. They to a very good approximation, but not exactly. So you so this not was, exactly that means you could tell you could tell, but you'd have to do very very subtle experiments with at high energy accelerators <laughs> to take a movie that looked different when you ran it backwards. Uh, this was a, a discovery by uh, uh, two great physicists named Cronin and Jim Cronin and Val Fitch in the. Uh, in the mid 1960s, previous to that, over all the centuries of development of physics with laws, precise laws, they did seem to have this gratuitous property that they look the same if you run the equations backwards. It's a, it's kind of an embarrassing property, actually, because life isn't like that. So empirical reality does not have the symmetry in any obvious way, and yet the laws did. It's almost like the laws of physics are missing something fundamental about life. 
if 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 it holds that property, right? Well, I mean that's that's the embarrassing it's, nature. Of it's it. it's yeah, it's embarrassing. Well, people worked hard and at at what's this is a problem that's thought to belong to the foundations of statistical mechanics or the the foundations of thermodynamics to understand how behavior, which is grossly not symmetric with respect to reversing the direction of time in large objects, how that can emerge from equations which are symmetric with respect to changing the direction of time to a very good approximation. And that's that's still an interesting endeavor. That's 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 interesting. And uh, actually, it's an exciting frontier of physics now to sort of explore the boundary between when that's true and when it's not true. When you get to smaller objects uh, and exceptions like time crystals. Or, uh, I definitely have to ask about time crystals in a second here. But right, so, so the CP problem and T. So there's so flaws T. to all of these. We're in danger of infinite regress, but we'll, we'll convert soon. No, so it's, it's, can't <laughs> the, possibly be turtles all the way down. We're going to get to the bottom okay. turtle. So 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 it became so it it got to be a real. I mean, it's a really puzzling thing. Uh, why the laws should have this very odd property that we don't need, and in fact, it's kind of an, ex, an embarrassment in addressing empirical reality. It seemed to be almost. It seemed to be exactly true for a long time, and then uh, almost true. <laughs> and, and in way, almost true is even is more disturbing than exactly true because <laughs> exactly true. It could have been just a fundamental feature of the world, and you know, at some level, you just have to take it as it is. And if it's if it's a beautiful, easily articulatable regularity, you could say that okay, that's a that's fine as a fundamental law of nature but to say that is approximately true but not exactly that's yeah, that's, that's, very no, weird. that's that's weird so uh and then so there was great progress in uh the late part of the 20th century uh in getting to an understanding of fundamental interactions in general that shed light on this issue uh it turns out that the basic principles of relativity and quantum mechanics plus the kind of high degree of symmetry that we found, the so-called gauge symmetry that characterizes the fundamental interactions. When you put all that together, it's a very, very constraining framework. And it has some indirect consequences because the possible interactions are so constrained. And one of the indirect consequences is that the possibilities for violating the symmetry between forwards and backwards in time are very limited. There are basically only two. Okay. And one of them occurs and leads to a very rich theory that explains the Cronin-Fitch experiment and a lot of things that have been done subsequently has been used to make all kinds of successful predictions. So that's that's turned out to be a very rich interaction. It's esoteric, and the effects are only show up at accelerators and are small, and so on. But they might have been very important in the early universe and lead to them be connected to the asymmetry between matter and antimatter in, in the present universe, and so. On. But that's a that's another digression. The the the, the point is that uh, that was fine. That was a triumph to say that there was one possible kind of interaction that would violate 
time reversal symmetry. And sure enough, there it is. And but the other kind doesn't occur. <laughs> so we still got a problem. Why doesn't it occur? <laughs> uh, the, so, but, but we're so we're close to really finally understanding this profound, gratuitous feature of the world that it's almost but not quite symmetric under reversing the direction of time, but but not quite there. And uh, to get to understand that last bit is a challenging frontier of physics today. Uh, and we have a promising proposal for how it works which is a kind of theory of evolution. So there's this possible interaction, which we call a coupling, and there's a numerical quantity that tells us how strong that is. Mm -hmm. And traditionally in physics, we think of these kinds of numerical quantities as constants of nature that uh, you, you, you just have to put them in, right? <laughs> that, 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 from experiment, uh, they have a certain value and that, that's it. And, you know, uh, who am I to question what God do? They just constant. Well, they seem to be just constants. Uh, but in this case, it's been fruitful to think and work out a theory where that d strength of interaction is actually not a constant. It's a fun. It's a field. It's a, uh, it's a fields are the fundamental ingredients of modern physics. Like there's an electron field, there's a photon field, which is also called the electromagnetic field. And so every, all of these particles are manifestations of different fields. And, uh, there could be a field, uh, something that depends on space and time. So a dynamical entity instead of just a constant here. And, uh, if you do things in a nice way, that's very symmetric, very much suggested aesthetically by the theory, uh, by, the, by the theory we do have, then you find that you get a field which, as it evolves from the early universe, settles down to a value that's just right <laughs> to make the laws very nearly exact, <laughs> invariant or symmetric with respect to reversal of time. It might appear as a constant, but it's actually a field that evolved over time. It evolved over time, okay? But when you examine this proposal in detail, you find that it hasn't quite settled down to exactly zero. There, it's still the the field is still moving around a little bit, mm. and because the motion is so uh, the the motion is so difficult, the, the the material is so rigid, and this material that fills all the field that fills all space is so rigid. Even small amounts of motion can involve lots of energy, and that and that energy takes the form of uh, particles, fields or fields that are in motion are always associated with particles, and those are the axions. And if you calculate how much energy is in these residual oscillations, these this axion gas that fills all the universe, if this fundamental theory is correct, you get just the right amount to make the dark matter that astronomers want, and it has just the right properties. So I'd love to believe so the, that, that, that might so that might be a, 
a thing that unlocks uh, might be the key to understanding dark matter. Yeah, I'd like to think so. And many, many physicists are coming around to this point of view, which I've been a voice in the wilderness. <laughs> I was a voice in the wilderness so, for a long time, but now, now it's become very popular, maybe even dominant. In the so almost like, so this axion particle slash field would be the thing that explains dark matter. It explains, yeah, it would solve this fundamental question of finally of why the laws are almost, but not quite exactly the same if you run them backwards in time. And, and then seemingly in a totally different conceptual universe, it would also uh, provide, give us an understanding of, of the dark matter. That's not what it was designed for. And the theory wasn't, wasn't proposed with that in mind. Mm -hmm. But when you work out the equations, that's what you get. That's always a good sign, yes. actually. <laughs> uh, I, I think I vaguely read uh, somewhere that there may be early experimental validation of uh, uh, of Axion. Is that, uh, am, I, am I reading the wrong? <laughs> well, there have been quite a few false alarms, and I think there are some of them still, I mean, people desperately want to find this thing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I don't think, I, I don't think any of them are convincing at this point. But there are, very ambitious yes. experiments and uh, kind of new, you have to design new kinds of antennas that are capable of detecting these predicted particles. And it's it's very difficult. They interact very, very weakly. If, if it were easy, it would have been done already. But, um, but I think there's good hope that uh, we can get down to the required sensitivity and actually test whether these ideas are right <laughs> in coming years or maybe decades. <laughs> and, then, and then understand one of the big mysteries, like literally big in terms of uh, its fraction of the universe is dark matter. Yes. Uh, let me ask you about, you mentioned a few times, time crystals. Yeah. Um, what are they? These things are, it's a very beautiful idea when we start to um, treat space and time as, um, Similar framework. Yes, right. Physical phenomena. Right. That's what motivated it. What uh, are first of all? What are crystals? Yeah. And what are time crystals? <laughs> okay. So, crystals are orderly arrangements of uh, atoms in space, and uh, many materials. If you cool them down gently, uh, will form crystals. And so we say that that's uh, a, spon a, a state of matter that forms spontaneously. And uh, an important feature of that state of matter is that the end result, the crystal, uh, has less symmetry than the equations that give rise to the crystal. So the equations, the basic equations of physics, uh, are the same if you uh, move a little bit. So you can move, a, they're homogeneous, mm -hmm. but crystals aren't. The, the atoms are in particular places, so they're, they have less symmetry. Uh, and time crystals are the same thing in time. <laughs> Basically, you, you, but of course it's not, so it's not positions of atoms, but it's ordering, uh, orderly behavior uh, that certain states of matter uh, will arrange themselves into spontaneously if you do them 
if you if you treat them gently and let them do what they want to do. But in repeat in that same way indefinitely. That's the crystalline form. You could also have uh, uh, time liquids, or you can have all kinds of other states of matter. You can also have space-time crystals where the pattern only repeats if uh, with each step of time you also move at a certain a certain direction in space. So, so yeah. So, but it's it's basically it's states of matter that uh, obey that display structure in time spontaneously. So here's here's the difference. When it happens in time, uh, it sure looks a lot like it's motion, and if it repeats indefinitely, it sure looks a lot like perpetual motion. Yeah. Like, uh, looks like free lunch. And I, <laughs> well, I was told that there's no such thing as free lunch. Does does this violate laws of thermodynamics? Uh, no, but it requires a critical examination of the laws of thermodynamics. I mean, let me let me say on background that the laws of thermodynamics are not the not fundamental laws of physics. They are things we prove under certain circumstances, emerge from the fundamental laws of physics. So right. they're not, you know, we don't posit them separately. They're meant, meant to be deduced, and they can be deduced under limited circumstances, but not necessarily universally. And we found finding some of the subtleties and sort of accept edge cases uh, where they don't apply in a straightforward way. Uh, and this is one. Uh, so time crystals do obey, do have this structure in time, but it's not a free lunch because uh, although in a sense things are moving, uh, they're they're already doing what they want to do. They're in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if if you want to extract energy from it, you're going to be foiled because there's no spare energy <laughs> there. You, uh, uh, it, it's or, so you you can add energy to it and kind of disturb it, but but uh, you can't extract energy from this motion because it's gonna it wants to do that's the lowest energy configuration that there is. So you you can't get further energy out of it. So in theory, I guess perpetual motion, uh, you would be able to extract energy from it. Yes. If, if if such a thing was to be created, you can then milk it for energy. Well, stop, what's stop. But what's usually meant in the literature of perpetual motion is a kind of macroscopic motion that you could extract energy from, and and somehow it would crank back up. Right. That's that's not the case here. If you want to extract energy, you. Uh, this motion is is not something you can extract energy from. If you intervene in the behavior, you can uh, change it, but only by injecting energy, not not by taking away energy. You mentioned that uh, a theory of everything may be quite difficult to come by. A theory of everything broadly defined, meaning like truly a theory of everything. Yeah. But let's look at a more narrow theory of everything, which is that what the way it's used in often in physics is a a theory that unifies our current uh, laws of physics, uh, general relativity, uh, quantum field theory. Do you have uh, thoughts on this dream of a a theory of everything in physics? How close are we? Is there any promising ideas out there in your view? Well, it would be nice to have. (laughs) (laughs) It would be aesthetically pleasing. Uh, It would be useful. No, probably not. Well, I'm, I shouldn't 
it's dangerous to say that, but uh, probably not. I think we uh, not not in certainly not in the uh, foreseeable future. Uh, maybe to understand it, black holes. Yeah, but that's that's yes, maybe to understand black holes, but. That's not useful <laughs> in my book, and and well, not only I mean, only to understand it's 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 worse. Of course, you know, it's not useful in the sense that we're not going to be basing any technology anytime soon on black holes, but it's it's more severe than that. I would say it's that the kinds of questions about black holes that we can't answer within the framework of existing theory. Uh, are ones that are not going to be susceptible to astronomical observation in the foreseeable future. There are questions about very, very small black holes when uh, when quantum effects come into play or uh, uh, so that black holes are uh, you know not not black holes they're 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 emitting Hawk well this discovery of Hawking called Hawking radiation, which for Astronomical black holes is a tiny, tiny effect that's no one have, no one has ever observed. It's a prediction that's never been checked. So like supermassive black holes, that doesn't apply. No, no. the The predicted rate of radiation from those black holes is so tiny that it's absolutely unobservable and is overwhelmed by all kinds of other effects. Uh, so, uh, so it's not practical in the sense of technology. It's not even practical in the sense of. Uh, uh, application to astronomy. The, the, we our existing theory of uh, general relativity and quantum theory, and our theory of the the different fundamental forces, is perfectly adequate to all pro all problems of uh, technology, for sure, uh, and almost all problems of astrophysics and cosmology that appear except with the with the notable exception of the extremely early universe if you want to ask mm. what happened before the big bang or what happened right at the big bang uh which so, would be a great thing to understand of course uh yes we don't but uh, but what uh, about the engineering question so if we look at uh space travel so uh I, I think you've spoken with him, uh, Eric Weinstein. Oh, yeah. Really, um, uh, you know, he says things like, we, we want to get off this planet. His intuition is almost a uh, motivator for the engineering project of space exploration. In order for us to crack this problem of becoming a multiplanetary species, we have to solve the physics problem. His intuition is like, if we figure out this, what he calls the source code, which is like, <laughs> like, like, well, if, like a theory of everything might give us clues on how to start hacking the fabric of reality, like getting shortcuts, right? It might. I can't say that, you know, I can't say that it won't, but I can say that in the 1970s and early 1980s, we achieved huge steps in understanding matter, uh, QCD. Uh, much better understanding of the weak interaction, uh, much under better understanding of quantum mechanics in general, and it's had minimal uh, 
minimal impact on technology. On rocket design, on propulsion. Certainly on rocket design, on anything, any technology whatsoever. And now we're talking about much more esoteric things. And since I don't know what they are, I can't say for sure that they won't affect technology, but I'm very, very skeptical that they, they would affect technology. Yeah. The, uh, uh, the, because, you know, the, to access them, you need to very exotic circumstances to make new kinds of particles with high energy. You need accelerators that are you know, it's very expensive and you don't produce many, many of them and so forth. You know, well, it's just, uh, it's a pipe dream, I think. Yeah, about space exploration. Yes. I'm not sure exactly what he has in mind, and uh, but uh, to me, uh, it's more a problem of, of I don't know something between biology and oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, maybe a little AI in and, and information processing. Yeah. What you mean? How should I? I think human bodies are not well adapted to space. Yeah. Even Mars, or even you know, which is the closest thing to a kind of human environment that we're going to find anywhere close by, uh, very very difficult to maintain humans on Mars, uh, and going to be you know very expensive and very, you know very unstable. And but I think the prospect. However, uh, if we take a broader view of what it means to bring human civilization outside of the earth if we're satisfied with you know sending minds out there that we can converse with and actuators and in, that that yeah. we can in uh, uh, manipulate and sensors that we can get feedback from i think that's that's where it's at yeah, <laughs> and for sure. i think that's so much so much more realistic and uh, and I think that that's the long term future of uh, space exploration. It's not hauling human bodies all over the place. I mean, that's 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 just silly. <laughs> well, it's, it's possible that it's human bodies. Um, so, you, like you said, it's a biology problem. What's possible is that um, we extend human lifespan in some way. Just well, we have to look at a bigger picture. It could be just like you're saying by sending robots with actuators and kind of extending the the our limbs or, but it could also be extending some aspect or, of our minds some yeah, information it all could those be kinds and it could be cyborgs it could be uh it could be now we're talking <laughs> not getting fun it could be you know it could uh, it could be uh human brains or cells that realize something like human brain architecture uh within uh, uh, within artificial environments, you know, shells, <laughs> if you like, that that are more adapted to the conditions of space, and uh, that yeah, so that that's entirely man-machine hybrids, as well as sort of remote uh, outposts that we can communicate with. I think yeah, I think those those will happen. And uh, yeah, yeah, to that, me, the, there's some sense in which, as opposed to understanding the physics of uh, the, the 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 fundamental fabric of the universe. I think getting to the physics of life, the physics of intelligence, the yes. physics of consciousness will, the physics of information uh, that that 
yeah. uh, th that brings, uh, from which yeah. life emerges, that will allow us to do space exploration. Yeah, uh, I, well, I think physics in the larger sense has a lot to contribute here. Yeah. Not the physics of finding fundamental new laws in the new sense law. of uh, you know, another quark or axions even. <laughs> the, 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 uh, but uh, uh, physics in the sense of, you know, physics has a lot of experience in analyzing complex situations and analyzing new states of matter and devising new kinds of instruments that do clever things. We, you know, we're the, 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 the physics in that sense has enormous amounts to contribute to uh, this kind of endeavor. But I don't think that looking for a so-called theory of any everything has much to do with it at all. What advice would you give to a uh young person today with a bit of fire in their eyes, high school student, college student, thinking about what to do with their life, maybe advice about career or bigger advice about life in general. <laughs> well, first read fundamentals because there I've tried, <laughs> I've tried to to uh, give some coherent, uh, deep advice. About, that's that fundamentals, <laughs> 10 keys to reality by yeah. Frank Kulchek. So that's a good place Available to start. Available everywhere. If you want to learn what I, I what I can tell you. Uh, the uh, Is there an audio book? I, I, I yes, read that yes, e there is an audio book. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, I think it's, I, I can give three pieces of wise advice that I think are generally applicable. One is to cast a wide net, to really look around and see what looks promising, what catches your imagination, uh, and, and promise it. Yeah, and those, you have to balance those two things. You can have things that catch your imagination, but don't look promising in the sense that the questions aren't ripe or uh, but but and and things that you and part of what makes things uh, attractive is that whether you thought you liked them or not is if, if you can see that there's ferment and new ideas coming up that become that's attractive in itself so uh, when I started out I thought I was and when I was an undergraduate I intended to study philosophy or questions of how mind emerges from matter but I thought that, that wasn't really right the timing isn't right yet the right was the timing wasn't right for the kind of mathematical thinking and uh, conceptualization that I really enjoy and am good at uh, but uh so that that's one thing cast a wide net look around uh and that's that's a pretty easy thing to do today because because of the internet you can look you can look at all kinds of things you have to be careful though because there's a lot of crap also but but uh, you you know you 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 can sort of tell the difference if you if you do a little digging uh the the uh so don't 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 settle on just you know what your thesis advisor tells you to do or what your teacher tells you to do. Look for yourself and 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 get a sense of what 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 seems promising, uh, not what seemed promising ten years ago. Or uh, the uh, uh, so that's one. Uh, another thing is to is kind of complementary to that. Well, they're all complementary. <laughs> the uh, complementary to that is to uh, is to read history and read the masters of the history of ideas and masters of ideas. I benefited enormously 
from as 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 uh, in early in my career from reading uh in physics uh einstein in the original and Feynman's lectures as they were coming out and Darwin you know these you can you can learn what it is, and Galileo you can learn what it is to wrestle with difficult ideas and how great minds did that you can learn a lot about uh style how how to ex- write your ideas up and ex- and express them in 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 clear ways and also just just to couple that with uh I also enjoy reading biographies and biographies. Yes, similarly, right? Like, so it gives you the context, the context of the human being that created those ideas, right? And brings it down to earth in the sense that you know it was really human beings who did this. It's not, uh, and and they made mistakes. And yeah, Uh, I also you know I also got inspiration from Bertrand Russell, who was a big hero, and H. G. Wells, and yeah. So uh, read read the masters make contact with great minds. And when you are sort of narrowing down on a subject, learn about the history of the subject because that really puts in context what you're trying to do and and also gives a sense of community and grandeur to the whole enterprise. Mm Uh, and then the third piece of advice is <laughs> complementary to both those, which, which is sort of to uh, to get the basics under control as soon as possible. So, if you want to do theoretical work in science, you know you 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 have to learn calculus, multivariable calculus, complex variables, group theory. Nowadays, you have to be highly computer literate. Uh, if you want to do experimental work, you also have to be computer literate, and you have to learn about electronics and, and optics and instruments and so. So, get that under control as soon as possible. Because it's like learning a language uh, it, to do to to produce great works and express yourself fluently and with confidence. Uh, it should be your native language. These things should be like your native language, so you're not you're not wondering hmm, how, what is a derivative. <laughs> this is just part of your you know part. It's it's uh, it's in your bones, so to speak. You know. And the sooner that you can do that, then then the the, the better. So th- those all those things can be done in parallel and should be. Yeah. Yeah. You've accomplished some incredible things in your life, but uh, the sad thing about this thing we have is it ends. Uh, do you um, do you think about your mortality? Are you afraid of death? Uh, well, well, afraid is the wrong word. I mean, uh, let's define. I wish it, I wish it weren't going to happen, and I'd like to. But uh, uh, you think about I, it. I you know, occasionally I think about. Well, I think about it very operationally in the sense that uh, there's always a trade-off between exploration and exploitation. This is a classic subject in computer science, actually, in machine learning. Uh, that when you're in an unusual circumstance, so you 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 want to explore to see what the, what the landscape is and what and gather data, but then at some point you want to use that, make decide, make choices, and say this is what I'm going to do and exploit the knowledge you've accumulated. And uh, the longer the period of exploitation you anticipate, the more exploration you should do in new directions, and so. For me, I've had to sort of adjust the balance of exploration and uh, 
exploitation. And that said, you've explored quite a lot. Yeah. Well, I I'm I haven't shut off the exploitation at all. I'm still hoping the exploration. For, uh, the exploration, right? I'm still hoping for ten or fifteen years of top flight performance. But the uh, when, <laughs> several years ago now, when I was fifty years old, I, I, I was at the Institute for Advanced Study, and my office was right under Freeman Dyson's office, and we were kind of friendly, yeah. and. Uh, and uh, you know, he he found out it was my my fiftieth birthday and said, "Congratulations!" And uh, you should feel liberated because no one expects much of a fifty year old theoretical <laughs> physicist. And he and he obviously had felt liberated by uh, uh, by by reaching a certain age. I, and yeah, there is something to that. Uh, I feel, you know I feel I don't have to catch. I don't have to keep in touch with uh, the latest hyper-technical developments in particle physics or string theory or so, I, uh, because I'm not going to, I'm really not going to be exploiting that. <laughs> I, but, I, but, but where I am exploring uh, in these directions of machine learning and, and things like that. And, and, but, then, but I'm also concentrating within physics on exploiting directions that I've already established and the laws that we already have and doing things like uh, I'm very actively involved in trying to design, helping people, experimentalists and uh, engineers even, to design antennas that are capable of detecting axions. So there and that's there we're deep in the exploitation stage <laughs> it's not a matter of finding the new laws but of, of really you know using the laws we have to 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 kind of finish the story off so so it's complicated but 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 i'm you know i'm very happy with my life right now and uh i'm enjoying it and i don't want to cloud that by <laughs> thinking too much that that it's uh uh gonna come to an end uh uh, you know, it's a gift I didn't earn. Is there a good thing to say about why this gift that you gotten and didn't deserve is so damn enjoyable? So like, what's the meaning of this thing, of life? To me, interacting with people I love, my family, and I have a very wide circle of friends now, and I'm trying to, produce some institutions that will survive me as well as my as the work and uh, um, and it's just it's how should I say it's a positive feedback work loop <laughs> when you do something and your people appreciate it and and then you want to do more and they you get rewarded and, and it's just uh, how should I say? This is another gift that I didn't earn and don't understand. But I, I have a dopamine system, and yeah, and, uh, uh, yeah I'm happy to use it. It seems to get energized by uh, by the creative process, by yes, the process very of exploration. Much so. Very much so. And all of that started from the little fluctuations <laughs> shortly after the Big Bang, Frank. Well. Whatever the those initial conditions and fluctuation did that created you, I'm glad they did. This was uh, thank you for all the work you've done for the many people you've inspired for the many oh. of the billion. Most most of your ideas were pretty useless of the bill several billions, <laughs> but I, and as it is for all humans. But uh, you had quite a few truly special ideas, 
And uh, thank you for bringing those to the world. And thank you for wasting your valuable time with <laughs> oh, me today. Right. It's truly an honor. <laughs> it's been a joy. And I hope people uh, enjoy it. And 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 I think you know the kind of mind expansion that I've enjoyed by interacting with physical reality at this deep level, I think can be conveyed to and enjoyed by many, many people. And that's I've, that's one of my missions in life. This Beautiful. Year. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Frank Wilczek. A thank you to The Information, NetSuite, ExpressVPN, Blinkist, and 8sleep. Check them out in the description to support this podcast. And now let me leave you with some words from Albert Einstein. Nothing happens until something moves. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.